Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureBiz Podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 148, and today's guest is Jay Bregman, founder and CEO of Thimble. Jay is a serial entrepreneur who has a history of building companies that have reflected the trend towards the gig economy. From package delivery to the taxi industry's answer to Uber, he has transformed multiple industries, and his latest company is tackling the insurance industry. If you are a small business owner or freelancer, it is probably smart to have insurance to protect yourself, but you probably don't need insurance all the time. You probably just need it while you're actually providing your service. Well, in the past, if you wanted coverage, you would have to purchase a plan for a full year. Well, Thimble is disrupting the industry by providing essential risk protection with a flexible model where you can purchase coverage by the hour, day, or month, and it all just starts at $5. The company recently announced $22 million in Series A funding led by IAC. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like what it's like building a company that ended up being an answer to a Jeopardy question, Jay's background growing up and how he ended up in entrepreneurship, his first two companies, eCareer and Halo, which both transformed an industry and led to an exit, all the details on Thimble, and how it is allowing small businesses and freelancers to get flexible insurance on demand, advice on hiring during the early stages of a company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Our job board has over 4,700 positions listed, and we just went through a major redesign of our job listings. It is a much cleaner design, and you'll find highly relevant information on each listing, like employee testimonials, photos, video, and the latest featured story from VentureFizz. This way, you can learn a lot more about the company and its culture direct from each job listing. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jay. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Keith. So, Jay, uh, we've got a lot to talk about. You're a serial entrepreneur, and you've started multiple companies that have exited. And uh, your current company, Thimble, is uh, really, really interesting. So we're going to get into all those details. But the first question that I absolutely have to ask you is, what is it like building a company that is the answer for an actual Jeopardy question? (laughs) Which I thought was a gimmick at first. (laughs) It, It was a huge surprise. Uh, so it was so much of a surprise that when somebody first sent me the video of the question, uh, which was, um, uh, this company Verifly, uh, will basically, um, uh, you know, we'll cover you if you break a few windows, um, uh, you know, and, and the answer was, was insurance, um, it, it, that I basically didn't believe, I thought that the video had actually been doctored and right. that my friend was just playing with me because yeah. it just seemed too crazy. Right. Uh, but then we actually contacted uh, Jeopardy and, and we, we sure enough, it was a it was a real question that they had sourced independently without any help from us, just uh, on a category called Game of Drones. Uh, so it just goes to show if you're in the right place at the right time, then uh, then yes. And they did get the answer. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. I'm like, wow. Okay, and I, I thought the same exact thing, Jay. I'm like, oh, this is like a fun little marketing gimmick. But I'm like, wait, this is an actual episode. <laughs> yeah, it is really cool. And, you know, like my grandparents, I mean, it, it, lots of people saw it <clears throat> that were um, kind of of the generation that are really into, uh, you know, into Jeopardy. So mm-hmm. it's still a, a very much a mass market um, thing. So people were, were very, very shocked. That's so cool. Well, let's rewind the clock. So, um, you know, going back to when you were a child. So, so where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Sure. Uh, wow, we'll go. We're going really far back on, oh, yeah. on this one. So, so uh, I was born in New York. I, I I grew up in Tenafly, New Jersey. 
Um, and, you know, I, I, I have always been very interested in building things, um, whether that be, uh, you know, kind of science projects or uh, arguments on the debate team, uh, you know, or, or, you know, kind of uh, other ideas for things that never panned out. I mean, I think that the thing that most people don't recognize about most entrepreneurs is that behind every idea that gets funded, there are like literally thousands of really, really bad ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of these ideas are taken, you know, are for years and years and years are, are, are kind of tried out uh, and then only dropped, uh, you know, at, at the last minute. So, uh, you know, it really is a, a kind of, uh, it's a grit and a trial and error game. And I guess I was always someone who had the grit to see it through. Now, why did you decide to study philosophy at Dartmouth, which there's so many great entrepreneurs that come out of Dartmouth, by the way. Uh, yeah. So, so we have, uh, well, another one is, is Steve Hafner, who founded Kayak, who is actually a, a small mm-hmm. investor. But, um, but yeah, look, so, so when I went to Dartmouth, um, I took some advice, uh, which was, look, go in the ORC, which is the big 800-page book of all of the classes uh, that are taken there, and pick the three out of regardless of discipline, regardless of, of level, whether they admit freshmen or not, uh, but basically take the three classes that you're most interested in. Um, and there was this one class called philosophy and computing. And this was, you know, 1994 or something like that, maybe 1993. Uh, and so it, that was a kind of very radical title, a very radical, um, uh, you know, thing to, to, to merge these kind of two ideas. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And so I, I took the class and I really loved it. James Moore was the professor. Uh, you know, he became a little bit of a mentor to me and, uh, you know, and yeah, and I, and I became a philosophy major, not really want, not, not thinking that that was what I was going to do when I got there, but I was just, I really loved it when I was, uh, you know, when I was there and it allowed me the opportunity to mesh two things, which was, you know, how to think critically about, uh, the digital world. Uh, but also kind of grounding that in, you know, how to, how to think correctly or, or logically in the first place. And then what led you down the path to attend graduate school at the London School of Economics? Yeah, that was a kind of another, uh, somewhat of an accident, meaning that basically I, 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 gradu- I was very excited to, to join the tech workforce in 2001. Uh, and I was talking to, you know, all kinds of very interesting tech companies about an entry-level job uh, you know, in 2001 with, with some of them on the East Coast. And the market fell apart very, very quickly. And I think the first thing to go was all of these entry-level jobs. And even bigger companies like the Accentures of the world, I think, were rescinding uh, their offers for these, these kind of lower-level uh, entry-level jobs. So I, I had been over to England before uh, to do uh, a, a semester at uh, Keeble College, Oxford. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, I thought, well, look, why not go back for, for a couple of years and then, you know, kind of wait it out. And, and I'm sure by by that time, uh, two years later, uh, you know, things will have righted themselves in, in the U.S. Um, and then I sort of got stuck there for, for eight years, but in a good way. In a great way. So let's talk about that. So this was, uh, you know, you're, you're founding a, a company over in the U.K., right? Yeah, so so I uh, I was getting out of graduate school, and I had a friend who was an office manager in a shipbrokering company, and part of his 
responsibilities uh, was to manage the same day courier account of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, this is a company that was constantly sending uh, ASAP on demand contracts must be returned, you know, right away across London. Um, and so it was a just it was a, a hair pulling job. And so we got together and decided that we would use what, you know, uh, what at that time was called mobile computing, but was way before the iPhone. This was, uh, you know, something like 2004 um, and GPS and these kind of devices uh, that were running Windows Phone that were just becoming commercially viable to receive data and GPS signals and to marry that with an auto dispatch algorithm that, that we called Larry uh, and, and basically create what I think, you know, was very, very early the foundational logic for a lot of companies like Halo, like Uber, uh, like Postmates, um, any of these companies really, uh, you know, this was way, way, way early. Yeah. Like this is like powered by like a trio or something like, like, like people are still using Palm pilots around then, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, th there was no enterprise, uh, mobile platform really. Uh, and, and the real, the only reason the business was viable at all was because the carriers like O2, which was a network carrier at the time, had just started to uh, kind of amortize the cost of the device over the contract. So they would charge you 30 bucks a month, including like a gig of data. Um, and then you get a Windows phone for that that had a list price of several hundred dollars. And that allowed you to uh, to be able to, uh, you know, operate a courier network where the couriers were provided these uh, devices. I mean, the, the, the part of the reason why it was so challenging and it then, and it's not now, is because now everybody brings their own device. And this was sort of an observation that we had had that was happening towards the tail end of, of eCourier, uh, which was that increasingly people had their own smartphones, which was something that had never happened before. And that insight was crucial to what would become Halo. And I, I, so as you were talking about your company, so I remember there was a company, you know, Cosmo in New York that um, was, you know, the, the early to the, the market of, you know, you know, same day delivery. So did you, did you at all, you know, learn from uh, some of their mistakes? Because I think they. Well, it, we did in a sense, which is we were not a consumer business. So, uh, okay. so basically we were not selling courier services to consumers or to mm -hmm. retailers, et cetera. We, we did try it, but it was it was a little bit of a nightmare back at the time because the retailers didn't have systems that allowed you to, uh, you know, to make that work. So we were a B2B company. So, you know, our biggest clients were the Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley's, uh, Harrods, uh, the big you know department store. Uh, and so we were primarily taking over their enterprise courier account, which is what they use for their business. Now, we did deliver to consumers. So, you know, if you. Uh, you know, had a huge contract with Goldman Sachs and they wanted to deliver it to your, uh, you know, your home or home office, obviously we would be, we would be sent to, uh, to do that. But it wasn't as if you could go and say that you wanted something from a shop. The best that you could do is just book a courier from A to B, uh, you know, uh, kind of on our website, which we did allow, but it was not a, not a focus of the business. Now, that, that was a benefit in that we could get deals and volume quickly. But to be honest, it has a double-edged sword, as we learned in 2008, uh, when basically we saw that the UK economy uh, implode, starting with investment banking, which was 
uh, our biggest uh, client base. And, you know, we had this front row seat to see what was going on in the economy because we could just measure the amount of deals that were coming out of the investment banking decisions of all of these major uh, companies. Uh, and basically, um, uh, you know, we could see that they were declining in lockstep with all of the, the, the kind of macroeconomic data uh, and, and that there was a real problem. Um, and so, so anyway, so once that locked up, obviously business became much more challenging. Um, but, uh, but yes, it, it, we were primarily a B2B business. Well, what's fascinating about it, and you kind of touched upon this earlier, is the fact that this was, you know, very much the the current gig economy that we know now, but, you know, way ahead of its time with all these subcontracted writers. Yeah, I, I do, definitely 100%. Uh, you know, the, the writers were all contractors, uh, you know, back at uh, back at E-Courier. Um, uh, and, you know, at Halo, the, the drivers were also self-employed. Uh, they were they were taxi drivers licensed tax drivers normally in most cases. But like, you know, I think it just goes to show you that the more uh, advanced the supply chain, the more orchestrated it is on smartphones and on these backend algorithms, uh, the more fractional work can really become, right? Mm -hmm. So this vision that I could dip in and out of being a courier or being a taxi driver for just a day or so, really was was very challenging at the time because the overhead in getting you signed up and then we got to give you the big phone and then you know like oh there's a lot that you have to do in order to get on and a lot of that is physical right it's not it's not software the the way that the world moved when we got to halo was that basically people were bringing their own device they didn't want another device we we could make it work without uh another device uh and so there was this opportunity that people could dip in and dip out, uh, you know, and get a couple of um, uh, hails uh, from Halo, uh, you know, on one day, but decide not to do any the next. And I think that sort of fractionalization of work and the freedom and flexibility that comes from that is really the promise of the, the gig economy that, that still also is in its infancy even today. Uh, but I think we're getting much, much closer to, uh, to, to the original vision. Well, eCourier was uh, sold to Royal Mail, which is the you know British post office. So there was a an exit there. What what led you down the path of starting Halo and deciding to you know participate in in helping disrupt the the taxi? Well, you know, it, it really again, it kind of was a it, it it really developed out of some ideas that we had had at at eCourier. Um, where you know we, we we always wanted to apply a lot of the learnings from eCourier to a larger consumer market, and so the uh, the taxi market is sort of the grown up big brother to the same day courier market. It's a it's larger market. Uh, it's it's uh, regulated. Uh, it's global, uh, and so what we saw was the ability to 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 solve a problem which was massive inefficiency. So if you looked at the London taxi market in 2010, when we started, up to 50% of a driver's time was spent searching actively for passengers. And of course, on the other side, you'd have passengers who were standing outside frantically waving, trying to find that, that one taxi. It was like a crazy waste of resources on a gargantuan scale. Mm -hmm. And so that was the problem that we, we set out to solve. And we said, we know how to do this, right? We know how to, to use mobile technology to create an auto dispatch uh, algorithm to be able to match 
more efficiently the buyers and sellers um, and create a better service for both of them. Uh, and, and it was made somewhat easier by the fact that, you know, we, our philosophy was, well, look, drivers, you already have a smartphone. If you don't, here's a list of ones that you can use. Uh, and of course, the passengers already had them. Uh, so it was, you know, the, the ability to be able to create uh, a matching network between them. Uh, and it, it just really took off. Well, what's interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong here. So you, you have the, you know, the Uber is just really starting to take off and lift you know, followed after. Um, but Halo, like like those Uber and Lyft were totally, you know, cutting out taxis, right? Making anyone to be able to drive their car and become a, a service. Whereas Halo was helping enable the the pre-existing taxi drivers, right? And helping them more efficiently find uh, riders. Well, yeah, look, I, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, things have come full circle. I, I mean, this idea of using unlicensed drivers was a complete non-starter in, in London. Uh, you know, at the time. And, and I think now what's happening is all of the regulations that govern how non-licensed drivers can behave, you know, the fact that they have to be, you know, to pass certain tests like written language, et cetera, you know, the, the, the fact that basically they, they can't, uh, you know, they, they have to be able to, to be associated with some kind of base, et cetera. All of these kind of things are basically starting to equalize. So, which is what we always thought would would happen. Um, and now, in a lot of ways, the, the, the kind of in New York and, and certainly in London and other places, the private hire segment looks a lot like the licensed te- uh, taxi segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference is that, uh, you know, there, there is not massive growth in the number of licensed taxi drivers. Right. Uh, and so when we started out, we kind of grew quickly to basically, uh, you know, to be able to service almost all of them. And I think right now... Uh, Halo's kind of progeny in London, this company Free Now that's owned by Daimler, has a massive, massive chunk of the drivers that are participants, but there's just not that many people becoming, um, uh, you know, licensed taxi drivers anymore. Uh, I've right. a lot more growth on the unlicensed segment because it was seen to be a lot, uh, it was a lot less regulated. There was sort of a vacuum before people realized that actually these two segments were really providing very, very similar services. Uh, but I think this kind of accounts for a lot of difficulties that, that Uber and Lyft are having in places like uh, New York and London, um, where essentially they're, they're, their unlicensed drivers are starting to be licensed. So uh, it, it was an interesting, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, it was an interesting way to look at the market. But but our view was initially that let's just go with the licensed guys because they're already set up, they're already available, there's already regulatory framework in place. Um, and that worked for a period of time, uh, but it didn't work when we, you know, we couldn't find any more drivers to, to fill the demand. Uh, and so that was a kind of lesson learned about how important having an unlimited supply is, uh, you know, to grow a, a business. Uh, and that's something that we've really taken on board at, at Symbol, uh, where we have essentially unlimited capacity to be able to write uh, these insurance policies. Now, with Halo, you did raise uh, over $100 million in, in funding. Uh, and you you scaled the business now. Like, how did you go about you know getting more on that consumer side of of the business when you were competing against Uber, Lyft, and and lots of others that were out there at that point in time? Well, Uber and Lyft, Lyft never got outside the United States. So there were, all, I mean, there was only competition when Halo got inside the United States. A lot of the growth in the early days of Halo um, in London, and people don't recognize this as much, was actually a, a kind of a virality fueled by the drivers themselves. 
So the, the drivers, the licensed taxi drivers, the black cab drivers were so proud to have a technology platform that was just for them that they volunteered to put advertising both inside and outside the cab with promo codes on it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we gave the driver some uh, you know, uh, commission on new customers they signed up. So what wound up happening was uh, the, the London taxi drivers would pick up somebody off the street that was not a Halo customer. And for the next 25 minutes, they know that they would have an audience with them to talk about how great this technology platform was uh, that you could find licensed taxi drivers. And oh, by the way, you can sign up in the cab uh, and be ready for your next hail so you don't have to hail on the street. And wow. so it was a really, really effective um, uh, viral marketing strategy. Very, very cool. So uh, ultimately, the company did was acquired by, was, was it Daimler or a division of Daimler? Daimler, yeah, that's right. Got it. Okay. All right. So getting to where you are today. So from what I've understood is, um, you know, you're, you, you have a strong interest in flying radio-controlled planes, and that evolved into drones. And that led you down the path to start a company and then to eventually do what you're doing now. So, so talk about you know, what you're up to now and kind of that evolution from where you started to where you are today. Uh, yeah. So, so basically, uh, you know, I, we started out um, uh, you know, as a, a kind of gig economy insurance provider for one specific vertical, one specific type of business. Uh, which was commercial drone pilots that needed to buy supplementary aviation insurance. So, you know, like most great businesses and insurance are built on the niche because basically that's where the incumbents really have the edge. Uh, and so the idea was I was a very avid drone pilot at the time. Uh, and I knew that a lot of um, friends out there that I was flying with uh, were small photographers, real estate brokers, uh, construction guys. And they were starting to use their drone for money and to fly for bigger companies in order to take pictures uh, or, or, or similar. Uh, and so if you wanted to fly your drone for, let's say you got hired by CNN or a big real estate broker, they would demand that you showed them a certificate for aviation insurance because normal business insurance doesn't cover the liability caused by, you, by a flying object. Uh, it's just not, not set up that way or boat or, or, or whatever. Uh, and so these uh, very small businesses needed uh, coverage for a very short period of time, just a flight or a couple of flights, and they needed that certificate to show uh, their clients so they could A, get the job, and B, when they actually got there, they could start the job. Uh, and so it turned out that this was like a fertile ground for building the first commercial episodic insurance platform uh, in the United States. Uh, so in order to solve this problem of how to allow uh, the drone pilots to, to go onto an app with almost no underwriting questions other than saying, where, other than the GPS locating where they are and it kind of developing a, a period or a place around you, a uh, radius around you for you to, to, uh, to fly, um, you could get a price and then you could bind a policy in 10 seconds uh, and, and actually show that policy in the field to your customer and even buy it ahead of time if you wanted to, if you needed to show it to the customer to get the job. So this required us to figure out how to do some pretty uh, kind of classic things in insurance, not ask any questions, bind instantly, have a different kind of, of premium calculation that was based only on location. 
as opposed to your history as a drone pilot. And of course, there was no history uh, because drone pilots didn't have any history because it was a new, um, uh, new type of endeavor. So we figured all of this out and we created this, uh, what's known as an admitted filing, which means basically it's regulated by each state uh, as an insurance contract. Uh, and we, we worked with a carrier partner, uh, we built it, uh, we got it approved by regulators, it's now approved in all 50 states and we got it to market. And what was awesome was that, you know, we sold tens of thousands of these policies uh, to pretty much, you know, anybody and everybody that was flying a drone for money in the United States. So the distribution was only through the app store uh, and continues to be right now. Uh, and, you know, pilots were telling other pilots about it. Uh, and basically it, it just kind of grew on its own to really dominate this one particular segment. Um, and one of the things that was unique about the segment is it was sort of an ancillary activity, uh, meaning that basically the people who were buying our policies, they weren't full-time drone pilots. There are really no full-time drone pilots. They were uh, small photographers, usually one-man bands. Uh, they were uh, small real estate brokers, again, usually independents. Um, uh, and they worked in construction and had a job site that they were doing the, the oversight for. Uh, and they just happened to be using drones for one or two of the activities that they, uh, you know, that, that, that they did in their kind of their job. Uh, and so we started to get a lot of uh, inbound from our customers that said something to the effect of, look, the system is really amazing. It's really amazing for the one or two times a year that I have to fly my drone for money. It's perfect. But but why can't it be adapted to work with my normal business insurance, my general liability insurance, professional liability insurance, so that I can buy it in this on-demand, by-the-job way and not have to stick with the current solution I have, which is this one-size-fits-all, I have to buy for a year, I have to pay up front, I have to do any of the changes through my broker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that sort of gave us the guidepost to, okay, well, look, uh, you know, commercial general liability is the, the, the largest um, small business insurance uh, filing or line of business in, in, in the United States. There are tens of billions of it sold. There's about $100 billion of small commercial insurance uh, sold in the United States. It's companies less than four employees. Um, and so we said, well, look, let's let's adapt the system to go after a much bigger market and follow the customers there. So then what happened next, right? So how did you get to the next stage of, of what yeah. you're on? Well, so, so, you know, what, what insurance is very interesting because it is actually, it is on the one hand, it's extremely complicated, right? You have all of these, these, these contracts, you have these pricing systems that are crazy. You get this regulatory uh, process, which is, Insurance is regulated uniquely by each state. So you got to go, if you want to do something new, you got to go to each state and get approval. And, and that regulatory process seems to scare off a, a lot of people, including the incumbents, from doing anything new. But actually, what we found in our drone program and also in our drone liability program is actually the regulators are quite welcoming to new technology that helps consumers. Mm. Uh, and the carriers are too. So you just have to have the, the, the grit to be able to put it all together and to manage a process that could take you know, 12 months to be able to get the product uh, you know, to market. 
Um, so, so anyway, what we did was we took the commercial general uh, liability insurance filing. Uh, it hadn't been updated since 1986. Uh, and so we, we figured out a way to, to make it modern, uh, to make it um, on demand by the job, to basically make it behave in an instantaneous way, the way that modern consumers, particularly people that were working transactionally, uh, would want and need it to work. I mean, that filing really is, although it says it's for small businesses as well, is really designed for much larger businesses, much more static businesses that have 10, 20, 30 people, not much changes. And that's very different from where all the action is right now in small business, which is the very, very small businesses uh, that some of them are not even businesses. They're just coming together to do commercial activity for a period of time and then disbanding. Uh, so, so anyway, we, we allowed, we, we uh, uh, modified this filing, uh, created a version of it that would allow us to sell anywhere between an hour and a year. Traditionally, you can only sell a year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, to do this with no, almost no underwriting questions uh, so that you could buy a policy in 10 seconds um, and with a totally different uh, you know, pricing structure uh, on top of it to account for the, the differences in the way it was sold. Um, and so we then uh, worked to find a carrier to, uh, to underwrite the policies because uh, that's something that requires a lot of capital to do. Uh, and also there's some very good capital partners out there uh, like Markel, who we work with on this, uh, that, uh, that are just are very advanced on the way that they basically are, are able to provide this, this sort of capacity and, and innovation. Uh, so anyway, we, we started to work with them, and uh, we, uh, we we released the product to market in in 2018. It, it started to sell like crazy, and uh, so we started to get some traction with investors. Um, and then IC came along. Uh, it's the uh, basically a, a company who, which is the parent company of Tinder and Home Advisor, and has been funding, owning uh, kind of the, the more interesting digital entrepreneurial ventures for better part of 20 years. Uh, also a New York-based uh, based investor, which was great. Uh, and so, uh, you know, now we, we've raised 30 million uh, and we're really just starting to scale the system in, in every way, including doing some additional products that now our customers uh, have said that they want in addition to the core uh, general liability. So uh, we view this as the start of a very, very large diversified uh, insurance company, uh, but starting in an area that the incumbents just don't understand, which is what's going on with small business and what's going on with the gig economy. Well, you started out with uh, Verify as the name of the company and you rebranded to Thimble, which is a great name. So, so how did you come up with that name and then secure Thimble.com? I'm always fascinated with .com acquisition stories. <laughs> yeah, th- th- thanks. So, so basically, uh, we wanted to uh, rebrand because Verify, like verification of flying, w- w- was pretty specific to drones. And as we grew bigger, it was clear that we wanted a name that would match all of our um, uh, ambitions. Uh, and so we, we, we figured out, uh, so the naming process is always really tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's particularly tough when you already have a business where people are kind of comparing the new name to, to that name. But um, 
We, we worked with a great partner uh, called Read Words. Uh, they're, they're based in London. Uh, and we did an exercise with them and they nailed it on the third. Uh, uh, it was a th the first, in the first 10 that they delivered, it was number three. Wow. And what was great about it was that the domain was available for some tens of thousands of dollars. It was wow. not being used by another company. Uh, and most, we, we also, we wanted a real word, you know, yeah. like we didn't think that we could make up a word. Uh, we thought that that would be an insurance, that that would not work for us in the long run. So that really limits, yeah, that really limits you nowadays to kind of choosing some object that has basically been forgotten by the world. Uh, and that, <laughs> and that, and the idea of small protection, which it represents, we thought was a really good fit. So what's your plan as far as, you know, building out the company and, you know, growth plans in terms of hiring for the team and whatnot? So look, I mean, you know, we, we can't hire fast enough <laughs> in, in pretty much every area, uh, you know, product, uh, engineering, finance, uh, planning, et cetera. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's our, our main focus is, is growing the team, building out the product uh, and really building out our, our customer and partner base. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a basically, it's a very interesting uh, industry uh, insurance where uh, new products don't come along that often. Uh, and when they do, I think both the industry and uh, the customers really react to that um, once they find out about it. And what I mean by that is, you know, we didn't expect that, you know, insurance brokers to be such an interesting sales channel for us. Mm -hmm. uh, but it turns out that they're all looking for the edge just like everybody else. And they've got people calling them that are these tiny businesses just like everybody else. And right now, the idea that they've got to take those very small customers through an annual policy purchase process they don't want only to see 40 percent of them cancel within the first year just doesn't make any sense to them. So they want these new zero touch solutions that they can instantly uh, send somebody a quote uh, and get them to purchase a policy um, uh, from, from uh, you know, innovative companies uh, like us. And so we're very happy to partner with them. It's sort of another, uh, you know, another customer of ours is really the insurance industry uh, that is looking for, for ways to, uh, to keep, stay ahead. So over the past 16 or so years, this is your third company. So, so, so why do you keep building companies? Yeah, well, I, I think that the, the biggest draw of it is the satisfaction of building the product and building the team and the company. Uh, I mean, it's really, really hard and it, it, it is not easier each time that you do it, they all have unique challenges. Uh, it's sort of like if you remembered how hard it was, you probably wouldn't be doing it again. Um, <laughs> but to be able to do it in in different areas each time and to learn a little bit from uh, you know from from what did not go as well uh, the last time, uh, you know, I think ultimately having a product that you are proud of, and most importantly that other people proud of and can call their own and can say that, look, this product really changed my day. It changed my life. You know, it's so amazing. Thank you for building it. I think that's really why, uh, why I do it. And like, do you, do you think entrepreneurship is something that you're just 
born with? Like you said, at a young age, you were just, you know, kind of had that mindset or do you think it's something that can also be taught? Look, I think it's something that has to be mostly taught. I mean, you know, most of the people that, that become entrepreneurs do not go to business school. I'm not sure what that teaches you anyway, mm. but like there is an awful lot of just general skills that I think need to be, uh, you really need to have, or if you don't, you will learn the hard way. And I think, you know, companies, things like Y Combinator and, and others, there's so many more uh, outlets today, mm-hmm. uh, you know, coaches, et cetera to be able to get some of that information to you, uh, you know, as you need it. And I think it's just amazingly important um, because look, although it may be, there may be some elements to it that, uh, that you can, um, uh, you know, that that, that you understand more intuitively, there's just a lot about the basics, right? Like, uh, you know, building the company, recruitment, management, et cetera, that, you know, generally people have have to learn the hard way. And I think it, it, it would be much better and much more efficient for everybody uh, if perhaps they they didn't have to do that because they could get some education earlier on. So you've built multiple companies and scaled, you know, different companies along the way. What, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs on, you know, hiring for that, you know, early stage of the company where you're kind of just building out you know, the foundation of what the product is and, you know, and then there's the next evolution to, you know, go to market and scale. So, so what hiring advice would you give to entrepreneurs in those different phases? Yeah, well, look, I, I think in the beginning, really getting people that have had some form of entrepreneurial experience is preferably at, you know, at another venture funded startup, you know, is oftentimes really, really important. And so this is why like at at Thimble and a lot of other companies, a lot of the initial people are people that were known to us already from other startups. They were at Halo um, or they were at Quincy, et cetera. Um, Because you kind of, you know that these people at least know the drill. Um, But, you know, knowing, trying to adapt people into startups at the very early stage, uh, you know, a lot of times just doesn't, doesn't work out. And it's just one other vector a problem. Whereas once you get bigger, I think you, you can afford to take that risk uh, a little bit more and, and maybe even, um, yeah, and, and maybe even it's, it's good for the mix of, of what's in, uh, in the business. So you're busy, you know, building a company, Thimble, uh, but when you do have time outside of work, what do you like to do? So actually, uh, so uh, I, I started boxing about six months ago, and although I'm not very good, uh, I'm sticking with it. Uh, and it's it's just a really, really interesting, uh, it's much, much deeper than I think a lot of people realize, uh, you know, in terms of how to actually do it right, and, and the technique, and the philosophy behind it, and the science behind it. Uh, so it's, it's taken up a lot of my time. Well, Jay, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all the great companies that you've built and, of course, what you're up to with Thimble and, of course, all the, the great advice for other entrepreneurs to follow. Awesome. Okay, great. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.